Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Welcome, everyone. Um, welcome to Battersea Online, to Westside, to those who are also watching online. It's, it's really, really good to, to be with everyone uh, here this morning. As Julia mentioned, my name is Mike, and together along with her and with a great team, we have the privilege of uh, giving leadership to, to this site, um, as well as myself overseeing discipleship at this church. So uh, wonderful to be with you and awesome to be kicking off uh, a new series this morning called Kingdom Come. I'm, I'm really, really excited about that. Um, hope you are too after that wonderful prayer that we just had. So I'm going to jump right in because I have far too much um, that I want to say this morning. Uh, and if we're not going to be here for an hour, I'm going to keep the preamble short. So let's, let's dive right in, shall we? Great. It's story time. What child doesn't light up when story time is announced? Uh, I, don't, I don't know about you, but for me, when I was growing up, uh, I absolutely loved story time. There are a few conditions um, at which story time would take place. One, if we all brushed our teeth, like really brushed our teeth and fake brush our teeth, uh, and we were in our PJs, one of my parents would come up uh, and they would read us a story. It was one of my absolute favorite times um, every single night. And I always would have this question, what, what will it be tonight? What are we going to hear tonight? Is it going to be about uh, the Pevensi children in Narnia? Or is it going to be Hadassah? Does anyone remember Francine Rivers' stories about Hadassah, Mark of the Lion? If you haven't read them, highly encourage you to read them. We were read them as a, as a child. And just this quiet, beautiful faith of this woman, Hadassah, in first century Rome, um, stood out to me throughout my whole life as this amazing example of, of fortitude and perseverance and, and following Jesus. Just amazing how pictures and themes and people and characters from stories that we encounter when we're five, six, seven, eight can, can imprint themselves on us for our whole lives long, right? Anyone else had this kind of experience? I absolutely loved it. What is it about stories that are so powerful and beautiful to us in our culture? Well, I think it's, it's the anticipation. It's the characters that we relate to and grow even to love. It's the immersion in another world, which actually strangely provides language and understanding for this one that we find ourselves in. It's resonance that I think is so powerful about stories. We also rely on stories to make sense of our lives. The only real response to tell me about yourself is to tell a story or a series of stories, right? This may begin in personal details, moving from memories of uh, childhood to first crushes to first jobs and first paychecks, hopefully, and hopes for the future. Then as we grow, we may start to ask different kinds of questions. Is there a bigger story than just my own, one that is able to make more sense of life and the world around me? This might be our story of family, or of your hometown, or even your home country or civilization, a broader story in which to fit our own story. And as we explore further, we might pose a still more significant question. Is there a true story of the whole world? 
in which I'm called to live my life? Is there a true story of the whole world in which I'm called to live my life? Stories of this kind, true stories of the whole world, help us to find our fit and our purpose in our day-to-day lives. It's an Australian sociologist called John Carroll. He doesn't profess to be a Christian, but he believes the reason that the Western church is in trouble is because it has forgotten its story. In his view, I've got his quote up here from his book, The waning of Christianity as practiced in the West is easy to explain. The Christian churches have comprehensively failed in their one central task, to retell their foundation story in a way that might speak to the times. To retell their foundation story in a way that might speak to the times. So as I've been reflecting on this, and as I've been thinking about this reality of foundation stories, I think uh, this is our great need today. As Christians, I think we need to recover our foundation story and then place our individual stories within that big story. Can we recover our foundation story and see that as the one true story of the world that makes sense of our own smaller stories of life, our own smaller experiences? Can we find our fit in that foundation story? And so it's this foundation story that is going to be my focus this morning, and we're going to flesh it out over the next five weeks together in this series of of Kingdom Come. How do we come to grips again with our foundation story? This is the story of God and God's kingdom. We want to join with Jesus in praying, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to first pray that God's kingdom comes in us, not just around us, but God, would your kingdom first come in me? Would your kingdom come in London? Would your kingdom come in the UK and the world? And we need to be really clear about what kind of prayer this is, which obviously the series title is based on, Kingdom Come. What kind of prayer is this that we're praying? Well, it's not an escapist plea to get away from earth and to find our way somewhere into kind of a disembodied state called heaven one day after we die. That, that's not what this prayer is about. It's about the good news of heaven coming to earth. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That future that we look forward to as Christians is not a disembodied state on clouds with harps. We were bored out of our minds after 20 minutes or an hour, ever long you enjoy that kind of thing. The reality is it's, it's, a, it's a heaven coming to earth. It's a new he- earth and new heavens. So Julia said something to me earlier this week um, that resonated as we approach thinking about the kingdom of God together the next six weeks. Uh, she heard a quote from someone who said, we've become too familiar with things we know little about or we understand little about. Maybe we've become a bit too familiar with this language of the kingdom, but we haven't actually grasped it or been grasped by it. So can we, can we adopt a posture of, of children, open, willing to learn, wanting to engage and understand? I think that's going to... Uh, be a good place to be as we dive into the series together. So let's read from Mark chapter 1. I want to read a few verses today that are going to launch us into uh, the story of the kingdom. 
Mark chapter 1, verse 1 uh, through to 8, and then verses 14 and 15. You can get there in your Bibles, on your phone, whatever, or I'll have it on the screen as well. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me, and I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Jump down a few verses to verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. So we need to ask ourselves, why is this an important announcement? You know, so some of you who may have been around church or may have been around the vineyard movement for a while go, okay, yeah, you know, vineyard keeps banging on about the kingdom of God. Uh, Jesus keeps banging on about the kingdom of God. Like, that's wonderful. That's great. It's like, we, we get it. Can we, can we move on to what comes next? Well, I'll tell you that the response from those who heard Jesus was not lovely sermon, pastor. That was not uh, their response. There's a reason why this was an announcement. What exactly was it that Jesus was announcing that was significant? So another way to ask this question that we're going to explore together today is, how did Jesus' first hearers hear him? How did Jesus' first hearers hear him? So we're going to zoom out before we zoom in over the next five weeks. I've got the big picture. I've got the big picture task uh, of painting this big story of God uh, for us, the big story of God's kingdom. Others are going to speak in more detail about the content and the character of this kingdom that Jesus proclaims. But what I want to do is I want to select some images and some promises from the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, uh, that provide the background context for Jesus' words and how his hearers would have heard him. Hopefully that makes sense. So here's the roadmap for today. Three things as normal. I want to help us to understand or read the Bible as a grand story of God, as a big story about God. Secondly, I want to zoom in on those kind of major acts of the story. There's four of them. And then lastly, I want to share an encouragement to live in and to live out this story that we're speaking about. Hope that's okay. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's start. The grand story of God. 
So N.T. Wright, who's an amazing theologian who I really enjoy reading, has called the, the story of God a drama. It's a drama. And I think this is true. Like any drama, the scriptures have high tension, exhilarating moments of joy, and it's fraught with dangers and unexpected twists. It's a high drama story. But I think this metaphor of drama is actually helpful for another reason. So think for a moment of a Shakespearean drama. Let's just imagine Hamlet uh, for a moment, Shakespeare's Hamlet, one of, my, one of my favorites. How does Shakespeare tell the story of Hamlet? Well, it's a single story told across multiple acts, right? One story told across five acts, and each of these acts build one from another towards the conclusion or the high point of the drama and ultimately to the resolution of the story at the end. But not each act. Each act is not an individual story. It's one story made up of multiple acts. Likewise, the Bible is a single story told in multiple acts. A single story told in multiple acts. We've got act one, creation. We've got act two, the fall. We have act three, rescue. And we have act four, new creation. Creation, fall, rescue, new creation. This is one story told across two or many thousands of years by many different authors and with many acts, but it's one story. Just as you get lost, as if, if you jump into act three of Shakespeare's drama, Hamlet, where he, uh, uh, Hamlet stands up and says, to be or not to be, no one knows what that's about anyway. But if that were the first act that you jumped into, you would be confused. You haven't had the building of the story and you don't engage with what follows. Likewise, we need to read the single story of God as one whole story read as it unfolds. So this story is considered to be unified by two overarching themes, and these are the themes of covenant and kingdom. These are the two themes that can unify this entire story that we're reading. So covenant is, is a word I don't have time to get into today at all, other than to say uh, it, it's a word that describes the relationship between God and creation, a relationship that God initiates between himself and creation. There's five major covenants in the Old Testament that lead into the New Testament covenant. We could spend an entire series just talking about covenant as a way to understand the scriptural story. I'm not going to do that today. We're focusing on kingdom, remember? That's a reminder to myself. <laughs> what is kingdom? This is a, the other theme that is able to unify this grand story of God and make sense of it for us. Kingdom is God exercising his reign, his rule, or his authority in his creation. His reign, his rule, and his authority. All that we need to know about uh, this for now is summed up by someone called Graham Goldsworthy. He says the kingdom of God is a central and unifying theme of the Bible. That's what we need to know for now. Okay, so this is an encouragement to read the Bible as a grand story of God's kingdom. It's a story told across multiple acts. So why don't we get into some of these acts together? Act one, creation. The kingdom is established in this act. So in Genesis 1 to 2, which is where this act begins, we see God creates the world and calls each uh, part of the creation good. So Genesis is an account 
of cosmic identity, not cosmic origins. It's not a science textbook. It was never intended to be that. It's more like a vision statement for the cosmos. Not how were things created, but who created it and what for. Who is behind creation and what is creation's ultimate purpose? This is what Genesis is trying to describe for us, a vision statement for the cosmos. And then on the sixth day of the creation narrative, God creates male and female humans in his image and says, very good. God blesses and commissions this human pair in chapter 1, verse 28, by saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. See, the role for humanity is to steward creation towards its purpose. They have been created by God to help creation to fulfill its intended purpose. On the one hand, humanity is to gather up the praises of creation and give them back to God, reflect these back to God, and on the other, to reflect God's wise stewardship over creation. So to rule, to have dominion as God gives human beings, is to represent God's rule and God's dominion. It's to seek the flourishing of creation. It's not to exploit It's not to manipulate. It's not to pillage. Worship and culture making are joined together in the creation narrative. See, there's overlap in God's creation of the cosmos and ancient temple language. Just allow me this one brief insight theologically, please. I'm going to say this. (laughs) We know that on day seven, God rests. And everyone knew that the deity rested in the temple. It's the command center for the cosmos. So creation is intended to be God's temple, a place in which he dwells and rules with humanity as his priests and mediators, his representatives. And so our creation, what we have, is everything poised for a glorious adventure. Everything is set up. Everything is ready to go. It looks glorious. Except, enter act two, the fall. This is where God's kingdom is rejected. Genesis 3 narrates the fall of God's creation into sin and decay. Humanity rejects God's loving rule for autonomy, which means self-rule. Autonomy is literally made up of two Greek words, autos, which means self, and nomos, rule, a law unto ourselves. And that's what we see in the garden It's the first moment in all of history where God's word is judged untrustworthy. The consequences are immediate and they are tragic. Humanity's relationship to God, to each other, and to creation is fractured. It's a partial decreation moment where that shalom that God proclaims over creation, where everything is working as it's meant to be, starts to fragment back into chaos. Genesis chapters 4 through to 11 document this rapid spread of sin through every part of society and creation. We see the first murder. Cain kills his brother Abel. And we see the high point of sin, which is the building of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. This building of the Tower is self-rule writ large. Not because of what they do, Building a city is not sinful in itself, but because of what they intend. They say in chapter 11, verse 4, let us make a name for 
ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. See, in the ancient world and in many places today, a name that is given is so tied into identity. What they were saying was, let's create a creaturely identity without reference to creator God. Needless to say, it doesn't end well. Enter act three, rescue. God's kingdom is redeemed. See, God looks out over the world and realizes he's going to have to do something about what has happened. Even though God is not responsible for the chaos that is operating in God's creation, God decides to take the initiative and move towards his creation and his creatures. This act has many different scenes to it. Uh, I would love to have done about eight scenes, but I've decided to spare everyone and only give you three. This is selective, remember. Scene one in this, in this act of rescue is the calling of Israel. See, just one chapter later in chapter 12 of Genesis, we see the call of Abram and Sarah, who later are renamed to Abraham and Sarah. God's response to the sin of Adam and Eve is the calling of Abram and Sarai. God hasn't scrapped his plan for humanity. He has relaunched it. And did you notice the difference? In chapter 11, the people say, let us make a name for ourselves. In chapter 12 of Genesis, God says to Abraham, I will make your name great. And this is the difference between the city of humanity, which says, let us make a name for ourselves, and the city of God, which receives its name from God. This couple is called, God forms a nation of Israel through them in order to bless the nations. God calls this particular people not to be an island away from the rest of the world, never to uh, impact it, but to be a blessing to the nations. They are blessed to be a blessing. Israel prospers and multiplies, and we know the story. Under Pharaoh, uh, they are ultimately enslaved in Egypt. God hears their cries and raises up Moses as a deliverer. The liberation of Israel from slavery is the seminal event in Israel's history. It's referred back to again and again and again as the formation of Israel as God's people and also an understanding of God's nature as the one who redeems by the blood of the Lamb. The name Yahweh is given in this context, which is forever tied to that historical moment where God delivers by the blood of the Lamb. We know how important that theme is later. Having led Israel out of Egypt, God makes a covenant with them to be their God and to dwell in their midst through the tabernacle in the wilderness. This Abrahamic promise of blessed to be a blessing is renewed in the formation of God's covenant people in the promised land. Except Israel stumbles and fails in her purpose, which leads to scene two, the long wait. We're coming to the, the end of this, this particular road soon, but this is the long wait. It becomes obvious that for God to achieve his purposes for his creation, Something dramatic has to happen. And so the long wait begins for God to act directly in creation, to do what only God can do. It's at this point that the prophets raise their voice in the Old Testament 
and tell of one who is to come who would do what Israel had failed repeatedly to do. From Isaiah to Jeremiah, from Ruth to Joel, Jonah to Nehemiah, the anticipation is building. Someone is coming. Someone is coming. It's like footfall in the corridor where you can't quite see who it is that's walking, but you can hear their footsteps. The sense of someone coming uh, through the scriptures is getting louder and louder. But who could this be? And when will God do what God has promised to do? To save Israel and put the whole world right side up. When will God do this? At the height of this desperate hope and this long wait, we arrive at the final book of the Jewish scriptures, the book of Malachi. Malachi prophesies in chapter 3, verse 1, See, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before you. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, indeed, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then, silence. 400 years of it creep by between Malachi and Matthew's gospel. Silence. No prophet in the land, no Messiah appearing. God still has not brought about the deliverance he promised of his kingdom. Rather, Israel has lived under foreign rule for centuries, an occupied people waiting, longing for God's day of deliverance, for God's salvation. The people are waiting for a second exodus. Someone is coming, right? Someone is coming. Michael Goheen and Craig Bartholomew write an amazing book called The Drama of Scripture, and they, they sum up Israel's hope at this time in this way. The image that best captured Israel's expectation was the kingdom of God. Israel looked forward to a day when there would be no king but God. Which leads us to scene three, fulfillment. Until finally there is fulfillment from this long wait, this long silence. Goheen and Bartholomew continued by saying, in the context of this fervent expectation, a young man from Nazareth, the son of a carpenter, would announce that the kingdom of God had come to Israel and was even present in him. Did you notice Jesus' words in the little gospel reading we read at the beginning? Verse 14, the time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. Do you want to know how this announcement was heard by those who first heard Jesus? Fulfillment. A sigh of relief that God had finally done or seemed to be doing what he had promised he would do for generations and for centuries. The long wait was over. God's Messiah had come. God's kingdom had broken out in our midst. Jesus said, what you've been longing for, what you've been waiting for is here. It's come near. The kingdom of God has come near. Another translation more literally would say, the kingdom of God is at hand. If you were to stretch out your hand for a moment, everyone, let's just do it. Everyone just stretch out wherever you are. 
stretch out your hand, grab the chair in front of you if you can. Don't touch anyone doesn't want to be touched. <laughs> right? We would, we would say in our common expression that that chair is at hand. Or if you have something in your pockets, your phone, your phone is at hand. Your Bible is at hand. It's within touching distance. What Jesus is saying is the kingdom of God has come within touching distance. It's that close to your face. You can reach out. And if you did, you would even grab it. The kingdom of God has come close. It is at hand. This is what they had been waiting for. This is why they couldn't respond and just say, nice message, pastor. Jesus is saying something revolutionary. He is proposing that he is the fulfillment of all that they have longed for and waited for. And it is in him, even present in him. The kingdom of God is at hand. I don't have time to get into this last act. This last act is, is new creation. It's where everything is summed up, where every question is answered, where every tension is resolved, where every tear is wiped away, where all mourning stops, where every physical illness is healed, where everything is put right side up, where God is all in all. The Bible, beginning in a marriage, ends in a marriage, a marriage of heaven and earth between Christ and his bride. Human marriage is not the goal of life. The goal is for it to be a trailer for that marriage one day, which is the marriage of God and his people of heaven and earth, where all God will be all in all. This is the story of God. This is the story of God's kingdom. This is the church's story. It's the true story of the world that makes sense of our lives, that makes sense of the times in which we live. We need to find our place in that story. And I hope you noticed as we come into finish, this is not a story with humanity at the center or primarily even about humanity. It's a story about God. We are like the stagehands who appear for a few seconds to clear the stage between acts or a minor character who carries the bags of the lead character. We're not unimportant, but we're not central. Because in this story, obedience is better than significance. Obedience is much better, brings much more joy than the search for our own personal significance. This is the story of God. This is our foundation story. Do we know it? Do we love it? Do we see our own stories and lives within this big story of God? I would encourage you to try to place your story within this big story. That's where it makes sense. That's where we find that shalom of God proclaimed from the beginning. What I want to do is, I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to take more time. But what I want to do is I want, I want to create a, a moment to reflect for a second. Uh, so if you're comfortable to close your eyes just for a second as the bands come up across the different sites, just invite those bands up at Westside and back to see as well as here. I encourage you just to close your eyes for a moment if you're comfortable. question I want you to ask God is this, what story have I been living in as the story of my life? 
What story have I been living in, even just this week? Is it a story of personal significance? Is it a story of growing fear and intimidation? Is it a story of loss or disappointment? Maybe just to ask God, what, what story have I been living in this past week, this past month, even my whole life? And as the Holy Spirit's bringing something to mind, just keep your eyes closed for the moment. And if you're comfortable to do this, just to open up your hands on your lap. It's, just, it's an ancient sign that we've done throughout the history of the church to show God that we're open and we want to receive from him. And if you can just hold up that story right now in your minds as you're opening up your hands. And ask God, God, how can I place my story within your story? Or even bolder, God, I place my story within your story right now. Holy Spirit, come. Welcome you right now to reposition stories across the sites right now where our stories have been too small, where we have been too significant and central. Would you elevate your story in our hearts, our minds, our imaginations right now? Would we be reinvigorated by story time, by your story? have a sense that God is really just gently repositioning some people uh, here in this room, but also across the different sites. If that's you, don't, don't disengage, lean in, stay in that place, let God minister and speak. Don't worry about those around you. For the rest of us who want to worship, who want to look at God together, we're going to Stand, we're going to sing a song or two. But as we sing these songs, can I, can I encourage us to remember to place ourselves in the story of God? If you're receiving God speaking, don't move. But if you're ready to stand and you're ready to sing, let's do that together. I'm going to pray for us as we hand over to the different sites. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for the reminder today of our foundation story. We thank you for repositioning us today to live our lives, our stories within yours. And Father, where that's hard for some, where that's really difficult for some to do, thank you that you are a gentle and faithful shepherd who leads us. You make us lie down in green pastures. You lead us beside still waters of rest. You know what we need. And so we trust you in this journey. We trust you 
to lead us faithfully and kindly and mercifully. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.